Hello, Oldest Stories listeners. This week, before we begin the show, I would like to ask y'all for something. At this point, the show is pretty well established. I have a good timeline that will take us all the way to the Bronze Age Collapse, a bunch of good reference books, and the show is available on most major podcast platforms and YouTube. Since this is a hobby of mine, I don't want to put ads on the show except every now and then to promote another show I think y'all might like. And I don't want to do the like and subscribe dance every show. But one thing I don't have is a social media presence. I haven't been on Facebook since high school, and I don't feel like opening an account just for the show. And so, if you have enjoyed the show up until now, something I would ask just for this week is to consider sharing it on any social platforms that you're on. Mention the show on Twitter or MySpace or Facebook or whatever you're on. Most podcast platforms have a button to share the episode somewhere on the screen. Or if you know someone who might be interested, consider telling them about the show. I recognize that this is a niche show with poor production values, but if you have enjoyed it up until now, please consider spreading the word so that more people can join our little community. Thank you for your support. These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. In my own lifetime, it has seemed like the period from the year 2000 CE to the current year, 2020, has been a time of immense changes. However, for the inhabitants of Mesopotamia, the period that ran from 2020 BCE to 2000 BCE may well have seen even more rapid and monumentous shifts, particularly in the political landscape. With the fall of the Third Dynasty of Ur and the end of the Sumerian period, the year 2004 BCE, usually given as the official start date of the new period, witnessed a newly complex and multipolar geopolitical situation, and one that will spread our story over a much wider geographic area, since no longer will the sole sources of power and information be concentrated in and around Sumer. It's been seven episodes now, or over a month and a half if you're listening week to week, since our last historically focused episode. So this episode, we're going to go back a few decades to briefly sort of remember what happened last time and then progressively widen our gaze to get a sense of the new political order of the Middle East as a whole. But we're going to be looking at it not from the perspective of the dying kingdom of Ur, but from the perspective of the many rising powers of the region. Because of this, there will be maps of the region on the post for today's episode over at oldeststories.net. They recognize that this is a very fluid and uncertain time, so any map that I might post is more of a guide than the actual reality on the ground at any given time. The main feature of the year 2000 BCE is the Amorites. Their precise origin is unclear, save that they've been a group of Semitic desert nomads living in the desert that nowadays comprises East Syria, West Iraq, and the northernmost parts of Saudi, though there could well have been Amorite tribes penetrating much deeper into the desert for whom no evidence has remained. Our first mentions in the written record speak of the Martu people, which is what they were called in Sumerian, as early as 2400 BCE, and by the Akkadian period, the Amaru, their Akkadian name, were a constant presence and concern. They were, however, almost certainly present in Syria long before that. 
From our late Sumerian sources, they come to sound like a flood sweeping over the earth and are indeed occasionally described in exactly that same language, which is much the same language as was used to describe the barbaric Gutians. However, while the nomadic Amorites were certainly capable of living as roving bandits and uncivilized nomads, this wave of invasion is critically different from the Gutian one. This is because the Gutians appear to have rejected civilization completely, even as they conquered it. When they moved into settled lands, the Gutians would often become nominal rulers of the cities and demanded tribute, but they never seemed to have built anything and seemed to have retained the highly fragmented tribal structure, continuing their life of herding and raiding in the Mesopotamian heartland just as they had in the mountains of Iran. The Amorites, however, were both willing and able to properly civilize, and so while the perspective from inside the dying Akkadian and the dying Neo-Sumerian empires looks much the same, from outside that confined area, things look completely different. Around the 2050s, for reasons that aren't particularly clear, though could be related to the aftermath of the 2200 BCE climate shift, the nomadic Amorites began to flow out of the desert and into the civilized lands. This wasn't a proper invasion with someone leading it, or at least as far as we could tell. Rather, the Amorites simply seemed to have discovered that they had more military might than expected compared to the civilized lands, and their constant raiding was simply able to push further and further in. And also, their increased military successes likely bred more success as their enemies were weakened and the tribes grew larger and stronger. They pushed against the military might of the Ur dynasty until they finally exhausted their civilized neighbors and broke through into what had once been the heartland around Akkad. For the Sumerians, this turned a threat from the west into a threat from the north, and it separated the region of Assyria, which had been by now fully integrated into the Akkadian civilization, from the south. But here's where the Amorites prove their superiority over the Gutians. Rather than endlessly ransack the middle of Mesopotamia, they conquered the cities and then began to rule over them, much the same way the local dynasties had. For sure, there was the standard amount of murder and plunder, but once it was over, it seems that each new city would fall under the control of one of the many Amorite chieftains who would integrate himself into the city's culture, learn Akkadian if he didn't know it already, and integrate the Sumerian religious pantheon with their pre-existing Semitic one, a process made easier by the fact that the Akkadians had already begun the Sumero-Semitic synthesis hundreds of years earlier. Of course, Amorite integration into existing Mesopotamian structures had begun well before the invasion period, with a regular influx of migrant peoples coming in from the wilderness and slowly tying their fortunes to the settled cities, living eventually in ways indistinguishable from the native pastoralists. Sumerian and Akkadian records will sometimes even make reference to a formal office of inspector of the Amorites, a position which seems to have been in charge of taxing and otherwise liaising with the Amorite communities within a city. And even outside the cities established by Sumerians and Akkadians, the Amorites actually had a fair number of small cities of their own in modern Syria. 
Yes, even though we are used to talking about the Amorites as though they were all barbarians, the fact is that their culture encompassed the full spectrum from hardy desert nomads to city dwellers, though for sure their enemies rarely gave them credit for their civilized elements, even when they encountered them as traitors and conquerors. All this paints a very complex picture for a group that, in most records, appears to pop out of the desert as an apocalyptic threat, conquer everything, then become so utterly normal that it's sometimes hard to tell who is and isn't Amorite, as the distinction slowly begins to fade into insignificance. Which, in a way, gets us to our first stop on the tour of Mesopotamia in the year 2000 BCE, the city of Isim with the complex and fascinating Man from Mari, Ishbi era. His story, as his moniker would suggest, begins in Mari, a city whose history has been intertwined with the Amorites for centuries by this time. Though interestingly, while his dynasty is commonly seen as one of the many Amorite dynasties of the period, it seems that not everyone is certain if Ishbi-era himself was an Amorite, likely because he was civilized, not one of the nomads. In any case, early in his life, Ishbi-era leaves Mari, for reasons that are never stated, to come work as a merchant for King Shulgi at the height of the Erd dynasty. We would perhaps nowadays call him more of a purchasing agent, though it seems this distinction hadn't really come about yet. Ishbi-era serves Shulgi loyally, then his successors, for decades. Until one day in 2017, as the Amorite invasion begins to really overrun the Southlands, Ishbi-era lets his lord, the petulant Ibi-Sin, know that land-based delivery of his grain will be impossible, and that boats should be sent. This appears to have caused Ibi-Sin to become enraged, and he sent back a scathing letter accusing Ishbi-era of being a swindler and taking advantage of the chaotic situation. We saw most of this in the episode on Ibi-Sin. It appears at this point that Ishbi-Era was simply finished with all this, having put in a good effort and having been spat on in return. And so, since he already had grain, wealth, and the governorship of the city of Isin on the Euphrates River, just a bit south of Nippur, he simply declared himself independent and began to fight off these bandits all on his own. And here we see the difference between an effective and an ineffective monarch in Bronze Age Mesopotamia. By this I mean, we can usually tell the outcomes of various historical kingships pretty easily, as long as they have a bit of documentation, because at the end of their lives, things are either better, worse, or about the same as when they take the throne. But it is less usual that we can pick out from that what difference a better or worse king would have made. We can't go back in time and stick Shulgi, or even better, Sargon or Naram-Sin, into Ibi-Sin's historical era. So we're left to wonder if the challenges were simply greater in Ibi-Sin's time than they were in Shulgi's time, or if Ibi-Sin was simply a lesser ruler. But in this case, things are different, because as Ibisin flounders and fails to meet the challenges of the age, watching his empire shrink to a single city and ultimately to final defeat, Ishbi-era uses aggressive and flexible strategies to navigate the Amorite invasion. 
On one hand, we've already seen in the episode on Ibisin that Ishbi-era was sending out very tempting offers to the other city-states, claiming divine mandate from the high gods, as well as promising to protect the cult statues of the gods, which were viewed as critically important artifacts in which the gods themselves resided. With his hold over the nearby city of Nippur secured apparently peacefully, the religious significance of that city likely swayed many to his side. It wasn't all peaceful expansion, but a fair bit of his military conquests, funded by the very grain and wealth that he had accumulated during his time as the merchant governor of Isin, could and were depicted to the regions as victories over cities in which barbaric Amorites had taken over, including the obscure city of Gertab only four years after his independence, and another unnamed Amorite-held city five years later. The 2010s were chaotic, though, and by the time the decade was out, there were no more great coalitions or empires, just a collection of now independent cities, some clinging to native rulers, though most held by one or another of the Amorite tribes. Into this anarchy, stepped first the Elamites, under a commander named Zinnum of Subartu. Now, Subartu is the region just north of Assyria, and this fellow holds a hodgepodge of cities all around Sumer, including at one point the city of Dapur. He looks like just another Amorite warlord seeking his fortune, but being from Subartu, he's actually a Hurrian. More on that later in the show. But as warlords go, he was slightly better than most at putting together a coalition of disparate elements. As this coalition begins to expand, it encounters the influence network that Ishbi-era had begun to assemble, and ends up conquering such major Ishbi-era allied cities as Eshnuna and Kish in the north of the region. But rather than panic, Ishbi-era appears to have spent a few years at this point fortifying his own position, reclaiming marshland into arable fields and constructing a new city wall around his city of Isin, only then marching out on campaign. That campaign ended up as a smashing success, though sadly we have no details to tell us if this was a victory based on martial skill, logistics, or both. Still, in the volatile situation following the collapse of Ur, a single decisive battle was enough to establish Ishbi-era, though a foreigner himself, as the elect of the gods and the champion of Sumer against Elamite, Amorite, and Hurrian barbarians. This campaign was the event that had helped distract the Elamites from their siege of Ur a few years previously, but the next year, the year 2004 BCE, they had struck decisively and ended the last bastion of Sumerian rule in Sumer, as was covered in the Ibisin episode. Having presented himself as the defender of Sumer to the other kings of the region, the Elamite sack of Ur presented him with an opportunity to consolidate his power and reputation. However, this was a campaign he lacked the strength to fight alone, and so, showing his flexibility, he hired many of the Amorite warbands that had been plaguing his lands as mercenaries, promising enough silver to wrap in 890 goatskins. And, don't quote me on this, but this may well be the first explicit use of mercenary armies in Mesopotamian history, though, as we're going to start seeing, it will not be the last. 
The campaign took years, but eventually dislodged the Elamite petty king of Ur and forced Elam to withdraw to their mountains. By the end of Ishbi-era's very long life, which saw service under four kings of Ur and 33 years as king in his own right over the city of Isin, he had established a loose hegemony over most of the major cities of Sumer and some in Akkad. Still, the Amorite nomads and the Elamites in the east were powerful shadows that threatened to sweep it all aside given the right opportunity. Even within Sumer, there were notable players like the city of Kazalu, the old power of Lagash, and the rising power of Larsa, though all are now ruled by Amorite dynasties. Larsa has already lost its independence temporarily, either to Isin directly or to Lagash and then Isin, depending on the account, but it will soon again rise to such prominence that the period will come to be named the Isin-Larsa period. And Kazalu, whose location seems lost to history despite its temporary prominence, will come to be soundly eclipsed by one of its tiny fishing villages, a smudge on the map by the name of Babylon. But I promised that this period would see players outside of the traditional Sumerian heartland. So let's pack our bags and head up the Tigris River. In the north, the cessation of Sumerian control came at about the same time, with the major city of Eshnuna on the Diyala River defecting nearly as soon as Ibisin had come to the throne. Eshnuna's king, Shu Elijah, was, as mentioned, part of the loose alliance group founded by Ishbi-era, and the first in his city's history to use the title king. However, it seems he didn't quite live up to the title, having been, as already mentioned, attacked by the Subartu and Elamite coalition, and his successors voluntarily reduced themselves to the status of Ensi Priest King, seen as a seen as an inferior title to full king at this point in history. Eshnuna would be the biggest fish in a relatively small pond of the northern Diala River Basin, but we will come to see it mostly being absorbed whenever any greater power stretches in its direction. Continuing up the Tigris River is the other Mesopotamian power center to rival the southern cities, the land of Assyria. Dominated socially and usually politically by the central city of Assur on the Tigris, Assyria is one of the only places in the region to completely fight off the Amorites all on their own, and it will be the last bastion of proper Akkadian dynasties for some 200 years. Assyrian history up until now is a bit obscure. It was conquered by the Akkadian Empire and then again by Ur, and so has been well assimilated into Akkadian culture by this point. At the same time, though, the Assyrian kings claim descent from a very long line of nomadic kings. The Assyrian kings list divides up the kings who ruled before Puzzer Asher into three groups. First is the kings who lived in tents, then the kings who were our ancestors, and then the kings named on bricks whose titles are unknown. Then it begins with the dynasty of Puzzer Asher, the Akkadian who took power and protected the region from Amorites. These are very interesting groupings, and the identity and historicity of them all is hotly debated. Still, it likely represents 
first a semi-nomadic phase, then a slow settling in the region by the ancestors of the Assyrians. How all of this interacts with the Akkadian conquest and settlement of the region is unclear, as is much of this early period of history. The Assyrians are a rising power, but though we know the name of Puzzer Asher, there's little more that we can say of him. As the founder of the dynasty, he's clearly a decent military leader, since he secured the region of Assyria, and he also built a few temples and city walls that we have inscriptions for. It's likely that he engaged with the city of Eshnuna, since that would have been the nearest major city, but records for that city as well are pretty scarce in this period, so we're left with nothing but a general sense of a decent amount of prosperity for a while here in Assyria. We will, however, be returning to Assyria in particular in coming episodes with more details about some later kings. West of Assyria is Syria, which in this era hasn't been given that name, but we're going to continue using it as a geographic term. The Akkadians would call it the Westlands, or Amaru, and the people of the Westland are the Amorites, who we are by now quite familiar with. If we were to take our travels off the peaceful banks of the Tigris River and make a march west and a bit south through the hilly desert of West Iraq, we will eventually hit the Euphrates River town of Mari. We've met the city of Mari before, as well as its little kingdom, covering the north section of the Euphrates River. This territory showed up back during the Akkadian conquest, but the kingdom appears to have remained pretty well intact, though under an Akkadian dynasty since then. That dynasty continued for an unknown amount of time until being replaced around this period by an Amorite one. Again though, we are picking up the story in an historical dark age. What we can say for sure is that the extent of the kingdom looks pretty much how it used to before Sargon ever showed up, ruling the Euphrates River and the desert of eastern Syria. The people speak a Semitic dialect called Mariot, as well as the Akkadian tongue common to the region, though an increasing number of them are Amorites, rather than whatever the Mariot Semitic peoples considered themselves, though honestly, too little is known about old Mari culture to really say what impact this has. That said, Mari is interesting because it is far enough away to be a bit distinct from the rest of Mesopotamia, but also has one of the largest recovered libraries of the Middle Bronze Age, and thus provides an excellent source for all sorts of little details. For example, when we get to the Babylonian period, we'll see the actual military dispatches that the king sent to manage his campaign against Babylon. Still, the period around the year 2000 appears to have been a hard ebb for the city, though not based on conquest directly, possibly the reduction in trade on the Euphrates as a result of the Amorite disruption is what weakened it. When we next meet Mari, it will be a properly Amorite kingdom, and one fast returning to its former glory. West of Mari, much nearer to the Mediterranean coast, is its former rival Ebla, while Mari is having a tough time, Ebla is very near to fading. The city itself may be independent in the year 2000, but it is soon to give submission to Mari and then 
to the Amorites, and then to the later power of the Yamhad kingdom. And so while the city will continue to exist for centuries to come, it is seeing its last days as an independent military power. Though the city provides us with another excellent library, it's from a much earlier time, and now we aren't even sure who the final kings of the city were. Trekking across the Syrian desert, due south from Ebla, we reach the city of Katna. The area has been populated for quite some time by the Amorites, and here we see a fine example of them beginning to transition on their own from nomadic to settled life. In around the year 2000, the city has begun to establish itself as a regional power, exercising dominance over a few other Amorite communities in the south of modern-day Syria. At this early date, we only know of the tiny kingdom from references by nearby nations, with borders bumping up against what remains of Ebla and with diplomatic relations with Mari. Additionally, its position as a safe land route from the wealthy cities of Phoenicia on the coast and with Egypt on the other side of them, and the Euphrates River that acted as a highway into Mesopotamia, will come to fuel its expansion and before long, Katna will be a name we encounter with increasing regularity when we look at the Syrian region. We will not continue our imaginary trek any further south or west. If we did, we would see that the coastline where modern Lebanon and Israel are have been dotted with trading city-states for hundreds of years already. These are the Phoenicians, called Canaanites in the Bible, and though they share a language, religion, and culture in common, each city is fiercely protective of its independence and its mercantile interests. These are the great seafarers of the ancient Mediterranean, and honestly I would love to do a show on them as well, but the truth is that they will occasionally trade, mostly through Syrian intermediaries with Mesopotamia, and will otherwise not show up at all in the story until the Iron Age. And southeast of the Phoenicians is the other great empire of the Middle East, though again, one that will have very limited contact with Mesopotamia, the Kingdom of Egypt. As of the year 2000 BCE, Egypt has just undergone a great reformation. Ever since the climate event of 2200, which led to the fall of the Akkadian Empire, Egypt has been split in a time called the First Intermediate Period. Fortunately, a fellow named Mentuhotep II from the Egyptian city of Thebes has been consolidating his power since coming to the throne in 2055, and now around 2015 he's finally defeated the Upper Egyptian Kingdoms, beginning the prosperous Middle Kingdom period and founding the 11th Dynasty. There is a fantastic History of Egypt podcast run by a guy named Dominic Perry that you can listen to if you're interested in some of the other oldest stories. But aside from a bit of trade and some cultural exchange, Egypt will not be intersecting our story for quite some time. And so, returning to Syria, we can cast our eyes northward to Anatolia. Sargon the Great was said to have made it into the heart of Anatolia, the peninsula of modern-day Turkey, though it isn't likely that any Mesopotamian king ever exerted much real influence so far away as this. The people he encountered here were not unlike the Amorites in being semi-nomadic but capable of founding cities in the right conditions. 
These are the Hurrians, another great ethnic group separate from the many Semites currently running the show to the south of them. They've actually been on the fringes for a long time. Like when Naram-Sin voyaged to the source of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, it would have been Hurrians that he encountered. And when Sargon went to Anatolia, here too, it was likely Hurrians. These people have come from the east and have slowly been settling in the north of the Middle East, the wild northern mountains of the Turkey, the Caucasus, and possibly even northwest Iran. The Subartu people and region, who have occasionally showed up in lists of barbarians defeated by various Mesopotamian kings, were considered in their time to be a distinct people, but are now believed by modern archaeologists to have been a branch of the Hurrians. Hurrians spoke a language isolate, that is, a language not related to any other known language, and had their own pantheon of gods, though, like most of the region's faiths, they were quite happy to acknowledge the gods of other peoples. There is evidence of a very early Hurrian kingdom, though it is a kingdom comprised of Hurrians, not one that ruled over all the Hurrians, in the Syrian city of Urkesh though in the current period that city has been subsumed into the kingdom of Mari, if indeed it was ever an independent power at all. And this is how we will mostly see the Hurrians, occasionally as barbarians like the Amorite nomads, or as an ethnic group interacting with other groups, but later we'll also see the Hurrians forming more cities and kingdoms, and becoming a major player in regional politics. To their west are the Hattians, though while the Hattians certainly existed, likely somewhere on the southern Turkish coast, they don't enter our narrative very much except as a cultural influence on the later Hittites, along with the Hurrians. Why all the nomadic people of this region have such similar names is a mystery I've been unable to solve, though we will see it again in the coming episodes. West of the Hattians are the very earliest proto-Greeks, but they aren't doing much yet. We're still hundreds of years from the Trojan War. To round out our whirlwind tour of the year 2000, by looking east instead of west, we will see a much more familiar picture. North Iran is still a mountainous waste where only the most barbaric of peoples live. Here and there are some trading colonies that mine rare ores and gems, but we hear almost nothing about them. South Iran remains the home of the Elamites, who have been fairly unified since the fall of the Akkadians under the Shemaski dynasty. The king's list for the Shemaski runs about 300 years, but is absolutely full of gaps. We know, however, that a fellow named Kindatu is king at the moment, since he just sacked the city of Ur and carried pathetic Ibisin back in chains. The main political concern with Elam will continue to be the steady flow of trade and the occasional flow of raiders back and forth with Mesopotamia, with the key city of Susa trading hands or gaining independence as the political winds shift. East of them, the picture is ever more obscure until you reach India, where the Indus Valley civilization is beginning its period of decline as the Aryans arrive. The long-distance trade networks, however, will continue to operate as long as everyone is wealthy enough to afford it. Which fairly well completes our world tour. The next hundred years are going to go by fast, 
Basically, none of these places have very good records running from the year 2000 to the year 1900. But once we get to the 1800s BCE, things are going to get very busy very quickly. And so next week, we're going to zoom through some kings and note some of the developments in and around Sumer under the Amorite dynasties. Since we have two warring chronologies about 60 years apart for all these events, but I'm going to do my best to keep it all in order for you. And so next week, join me as we look at the Isin half of the Isin Larsa period, which will see all of the fun of Bronze Age intercity politics with wars, building projects, wars, legal codes, and more wars. Thank you for listening.